the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore, breathless with the, the racing that's going on at the moment. And I'm with, I think, an equally breathless Lionel Burney. Giddy, Richard. Positively giddy. I was spinning round like a top. You've you've just been you just come back from Tuscany. You had a lovely weekend away with Simon Gill at the uh, at Strada Bianca, a, a mini break documented in the first of two episodes this week. Um, very evocative it was too, Lionel. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean corrections corners flooding in already. I've had Lizzie Banks on WhatsApp today pronu- uh, correcting my pronunciation of Strade Bianche. Um, as I said in in Watford, we tend to flatten all the vowels and really land heavily on the consonants. It's just unfortunately that's how I, I say things in my head. It sounds uh, lyrical and poetic, but it's obviously not coming out quite right. But uh, just um, just call it the White Roads next year. Oh well, why why not? And also Joe Grant on Twitter. I mentioned uh, Jurgen Klopp's recent quote. Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool football manager, about how football is the most important of the things that don't matter and he points out Joe Grant did that Arrigo Sacchi the great Milan manager was the person who apparently said that first and I wish I'd known that when I was recording because obviously it's a little bit more uh, poetic to have an Italian as the uh, originator of that particular quote but I was using it to kind of a bit more learned wouldn't you you'd have sounded I would have done, yeah, exactly. Like Daniel. Like I knew what I I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of slightly more concern, there's another piece of correspondence from Will Roberts today. Morning all. Really enjoyed the the show, the Strada Bianca episode. Just hope Lionel doesn't get into trouble. Every car I've had in Italy strictly forbids use on white roads. Regards, Will Mm. Roberts. Thanks for that, Will. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, well, I'm just awaiting the call now. Lionel's checking his terms and conditions at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, there was a little bit of dust on the car when we dropped it back at the airport on Monday morning. I must admit, uh, they may suspect that we drove it on the white road. I have to say, uh, if you haven't listened to the episode, hopefully my enthusiasm for the race uh, came across. It was a sort of, not really a race report, it was a bit of a travel log. Hopefully it captured a little bit of the difficulty of covering the race. Um, it was a challenge because I'd never been there before. We were learning very much on the job and it is a difficult one logistically to cover um, because, well, the women's race goes out at nine o'clock in the morning and finishes when the men are out on the course and, um, yeah, not an easy one to cover on the ground. So hopefully people got a flavour of what Tuscany was like at the weekend. But, I mean, it wasn't until I watched the highlights I knew really what had happened in either race well two really interesting different races weren't they and the women's race uh, with Lotte Capecchi uh, what a ride from her just phenomenal um we are th- we're going to catch up with the racing in this episode um it, after this part we'll hear from Daniel Freib and me at Paris Nice uh, dispatch from Orléans after the first two stages so I mean, two really thrilling and action-packed and intriguing stages to open Paris-Nice. So we'll 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 hear from Daniel and me. Um, we're going back in time a little bit to catch up on those two stages. We'll hear a few interviews there as well, including from Ben O'Connor, who rode extremely well on stage two in the crosswinds. Sadly, didn't start today's time trial. He um, succumbed to a bit of flu. Um, we are recording now on Wednesday, just after the time trial in Paris and just after a bunch sprint at Terreno Adriatico. Um, so we're going to be uh, yeah catching up with Paris 
Terreno Adriatico, looking back a little bit, Strada Bianca. And uh, in the final part, we're going to look ahead to the new Netflix uh, series, Netflix turning their attention to the Tour de France. Um, it seems like a, a version of Drive to Survive, their phenomenally successful and popular series covering Formula One. Uh, they're taking that treatment to cycling, which is very exciting, I think, for cycling fans, for the sport in general. And we'll hear a little bit from Tom Sutherman, Owen Duell on that as well. Their team, EF Education, Easy Post, one of the eight teams going to be part of that. But before all of that, do you have a news roundup, please, Lionel? Yes, I do, Richard. All the racing first. Uh, Strade Bianche at the weekend, won by Tade Pogacar in really astonishing fashion, wasn't it? Uh, just under 50 kilometres to go when he attacked. Uh, we've said he's the Pognomenon, uh, what's Daniel's phrase? Pog Pogcineration. Pogcineration. I mean, this was Pogissimo, wasn't it? I mean, he really uh, lit up the white roads and looked very, very impressive, unbeatable uh, almost. Alejandro Valverde, um, well, he got the, the, he was on the grey roads, I guess, 41 years old. Um, an impressive second place for him. As you said, Richard, the women's race was a humdinger. I mean, Lotte Kopecky, I mean, beating Annemiek van Vluten in the finish was, uh, well, just the, the kind of headline, really, because it was a, a thrilling finale. Ashley Moorman Passio was third. Uh, Pogissimo's uh, win in Italy really has topped an incredible week for UAE Team Emirates because Matteo Trentin won Le Samin in Belgium ahead of Hugo Hofstetter. Hofstetter really weaved his way through um, a bit like a sort of dodgem car through the finish, wasn't it, in, in the sprint? But uh, Trentin held him off to win there. And UAE also swept the podium at Trofeo Leguelia with Jan Polanch ahead of Alessandro Covi and Juan Ayuso. So certainly in form on several fronts, UAE Team Emirates. Uh, the women's edition of Le Samin was won by Emma Norsgaard of Movistar. Then there was another race in Belgium, the Grand Prix Jean-Pierre Montserrat, named after the late world champion from the early 1970s. It was won by the young Lotto Soudal rider Arno de Lee, and Hofstetter was on the podium again there in third place behind Dries de Bont. Um, as I think we mentioned last week, but perhaps it slipped under the radar a bit, Quick Step are going to be without Tim de Klerk for the Classics. Uh, certainly going to miss the racing in March and probably most of April as well. He's contracted COVID and has uh, pericarditis, so he will be out of action for a little while. Well, as I mentioned in my episode from Tuscany, uh, it was impossible to ignore what's been going on in Ukraine, uh, the conflict there, the invasion by Russia um, well, it's, it's on everybody's minds, isn't it? And it does relate to sport and to the sport of cycling. Um, there's some political machinations going on that I'll talk about at the end of the episode today. But a couple of things that relate to the sport. Uh, the Gazprom team has been suspended. They wanted to ride the Trofeo Leguelia in plain white jerseys. But their bike sponsors Look and other sponsors had withdrawn support. And the team has been suspended from racing. The Drone Hopper team, that's Jani Savio's team, arrived at the sign-on in Ukrainian tribute jerseys at Trofeo Leguelia 
Um, they have the Ukrainian champion Andre Ponomar riding for them, but he wasn't taking part in that particular race. And Pavel Sivakov has switched nationality from Russian to French. This is something he'd wanted to do for some time, but the process has been fast-tracked by the UCI as a result of the situation uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Sivakov was born in Italy and grew up in France, but his parents are both Russian. Alexei Sivakov, who raced for the French Big Mat team for a few years around the turn of the century, and Alexandra Kolyaseva, who won two team time trial world titles for Russia, and won the Tour de Lourdes and was second in the women's Giro. As I say, um, some impact regarding the European Cycling Union and the UCI. That's the world governing body, but I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. And finally, some very sad news. Dean Woods passed away aged 55 uh, from cancer. Uh, If you, like me, remember the 1986 Commonwealth Games. He was one of the stars of the show, wasn't he, Richard? He won uh, two gold medals on the track and a silver. He also won Team Pursuit gold at the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984 and uh, a a handful of other Olympic medals in uh, Seoul, I think it was, wasn't it? 1988. Mm. So sad news that uh, Dean Woods passed away. And finally, there's a story to be dug into regarding the Astana team who have not been paid apparently for January and February. Velo News have done some good reporting on this so far. This is of course a team state owned and funded. Um, There's been political uncertainty in Kazakhstan um, since the start of the year hasn't there and that is having a knock-on effect for the cycling team as well. We're going to be talking a lot about the racing at Paris-Nice and Tirreno-Adriatico in this week's episode. For the first time for that I can ever remember, they finish on the same day. Normally they overlap rather than sort of clash directly like they do um, this way. Chiro mentioned that the reason for Tirreno's date change is just to have the final stages held over the weekend and that frees up a slot for um, for Milano-Torino in the middle of next week before Milan-San Remo next weekend, the first of the monuments. Uh, I mean, what can you say about the racing in Paris-Nice? Stage one was an absolute humdinger, wasn't it? In the crosswinds, a Jumbo-Visma 1-2-3, Christophe Laporte ahead of Primoz Roglic and Wout van Aert. The three riders finished clear of everybody else after breaking clear on the finishing circuit with around six kilometres to go, wasn't it? Uh, The finished picture ruined only by the fact that Roglic was in um, long trousers, I was going to say, bib tights or leg warmers. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if ever there was a sign that, you know, Roglic is, is sort of not, not yet at his absolute best, um, the sight of him riding away from everyone wearing tights. Oh, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And then more crosswinds on stage two. Um, it did all come back together and Fabio Jakobsen won his sixth race of the 2022 season ahead of Van Aert and Laporte. There's a theme developing here, isn't there? Uh, stage three, Mads Pedersen, who pulls off these sprint wins, doesn't he, uh, every now and again? got ahead of uh, Bruin Cocker and Van Aert again. And as you said, Richard, the time trial today, Ben O'Connor was out with flu. He was riding high overall. Uh, Max Schachmann, who's won the last two editions, also pulled out with illness. Um, but Wout Van Aert, I mean, it was another Jumbo Visma masterclass, wasn't it? He pits Roglic and takes over the leader's jersey. Laporte did a fantastic ride and is still holding a podium position at the moment. Uh, The other impressive rides were by Rowan Dennis, who led for a lot of the day before the Jumbo-Visma riders started arriving. 
and Simon Yates as well who as the climbing stages come along later on in the week he put in a fantastic ride on the time trial and as time trials go I thought it was a good one with that uphill finish at the end uh, good to watch Meanwhile, over in Italy, that kicked off with a time trial, won by Filippo Ganna ahead of Remco Evenepoel, Tadej Pogacar and Kasper Askren. It was Alex Dowsett who had led for a long while, but he eventually finished fifth. And the subsequent two stages have both ended in sprint finishes. Tim Malia of Alpecin Fenix yesterday. Sorry, it's Alpecin de Koenig now, isn't it, I think? Or is it Alpecin? No, Alpecin Fenix. It's still Alpecin Fenix, but they have de Koenig as a co-sponsor, don't they? He won... Uh, yesterday and today i mean if you just looked at the headline and saw that caleb ewan won for lotto sidal you'd assume it was a fairly uh, you know uneventful day but there was this extraordinary move by Tadej pogachar and his teammate mark soler kicked off by julian alaphilippe the world champion teo gagan hart joined them and we had these four riders who really made the sprinting sprinters teams work very hard to bring it all back together still four days to go in both races and next week we will more than likely i think we've decided this editorial conference has decided we'll do one episode on paris nice and one episode on tirreno adriatico also looking ahead at milan san remo so another week with two episodes next week and the final item in the news lionel is that uh, next week we'll also be launching a, a new show uh, arrive um we will be throughout the spring bringing you instant, more or less, instant reaction, analysis, discussion from the big races. And the first one of those is the first monument of the season, Milan San Remo. So Lionel, Daniel and I will be on hand and you should have that in your ears as soon as possible after the finish. I mean, we've got cycling covered, haven't we? We have Kilometre Zero at the Grand Tours. Now we have Arrive for the big one-day races. I mean, it's Just only a matter of time don't for... Really pay attention to <laughs> before only a matter of time before i launch the feed zone of course to go out oh. i don't know maybe sometime in the middle of the week just be all about food <laughs> the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches and now you can wear the super sapiens energy band the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thanks very much to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Grateful to them for their support. Now, I caught up last week with their founder and chief executive, Phil Sutherland to find out how things are going with Super Sapiens a year after they launched. We talked last year a lot about, you know, any any humans an athlete. And, you know, so, but we've, we've kind of taken that a step back to really focus on, you know, who, who do we want to serve? And it's our belief at Super Sapiens that anyone with a goal is an athlete. And, and so that really yields into, you know, what is your goal, right? And, and so... You know how people have used the product. You know, seventy-nine percent of our users have changed their nutrition habits through the app insights. Sixty-seven percent feel they can go faster, stronger for longer. Thirty-six um, percent of people have noticed a change in their body weight or composition. And you know, and then fifty percent of the the users, you know, are now fueling a lot more because of the data they've seen on the app. So it's it's just fun to see how people have used it. 
And that's going to help us narrow our focus for how we help people on a going forward basis. That was Phil Sutherland. Thanks once again to Super Sapiens for their support of the cycling podcast. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I was at Paris-Nice for the first couple of stages. And on the third day in the morning, uh, I caught up with Daniel Freib. And we discussed those very eventful first two stages. And you'll hear a few interviews in this segment as well. So here we are in Orléans, me and Daniel. I'm in uh, a very early morning in Orléans with swimming instructor Daniel Freib. Hello, Daniel. How are you? It was a shocking revelation last night, wasn't it? I'm learning new new things about you all the time. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, we won't have a chance here at Paris-Nice to to do any swimming. Um, (laughs) To work on your breaststroke. (laughs) Never mind water, there was a lot of wind yesterday, wasn't there? That must have been a tough day for you. Well, it's typical Paris-Nice, isn't it? The first few... Um, days of Paris have become I suppose they were always notorious to a certain extent for crosswinds but the ASO have leaned into this haven't they because we were talking last night about how Paris for a long time finished in oh, sorry it started in a place called Nouvelle um, which was a long way south of Paris and I think I heard yesterday that is it the 13th year that they've had an agreement with the Yveline which is the sort of suburbs um, around to the south of Paris and since the race has started there it's had further to travel to get to the south and that means more days across this sort of bread basket in the middle of France with no you know no protection from the wind on a lot of the roads and consequently we don't just get one day of crosswinds but in this edition for example we're probably going to get three and it's a lot brilliant isn't it wow. i mean we did see uh, we've seen two very exciting days of racing we're going to talk briefly about strada bianca later but that already seems like a long time ago um stage one here at paris nice um a lot of people were expecting a bunch sprint a lot of good sprinters here but um Jumbo visma really uh ripped it up didn't they and 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 three of them came to finish christophe laporte i mean the way they set it up was fantastic it, very narrow roads uh, quite tricky. Um, they really strung it out on the approach to a, a pretty short climb, one kilometre long, 6%, nothing really. Um, Nathan Van Hooydonk, who was very impressive on opening weekend, again, really, um, you know, riding in a way that we haven't really seen him ride before. And he set up for Christophe Laporte, who was also very impressive. I mean, uh, seeing Laporte here in Jumbo-Visma colours, um, Reminds me a bit of seeing Lotta Kopecky for her new team, SD Works. It's a rider who's been good and been, you know, capable of winning races, but seems to have just raised their level moving to a, a better team. Yeah, Laporte's, I mean, he's someone who came into road racing pretty late. He was a mountain biker. And even when he arrived at Cofidis and started getting good results a few years ago, people were kind of surprised um, because he's, he wasn't someone who'd been heavily touted. And then he got... So pigeonholed as a lead-out man, didn't he, with Buani and mm. and that he could have remained as a lead-out man had he not sort of fallen out with Buani and actually almost usurped him. Um, there was that famous was it Rudy Sud where um, their relationship deteriorated over a few days and and he was sort of emancipated to a certain extent after that and started getting his own chances as a sprinter. But um, he's always he's always looked strong on a variety of different courses, hasn't he? And by all accounts, everyone's been really impressed with him since he joined there in um, the closed season. I mean, he's been talking about the the altitude camp that they all did, the long altitude camp, and how hard 
the, the team works and you can kind of see that here. But Laporte also stayed longer than the rest of the team, I think, because he got COVID and this left him um, a, a bit behind schedule. So I think he stayed there, was it in Sierra Nevada? No, it yeah, was, no, in, was in Tenerife. He was in a Tenerife yeah. right up until I think the eve of um, Het Newsblad. That's right. I mean, it was an interview on in the keep, wasn't it, last week? Mm. And you got a sense from that, without him being critical of Cofidis, but you got a real sense of the difference in the commitment required at Yumbo Visma. And he was talking about wanting to have his family there for at least some of these altitude camps because they're going away for three weeks. And then and then, before a three-week race, it's a long time away. Um, so there was a real sense from that of the, 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 the level that he's required to be at also raising. And, and we can see, I mean, it was a fantastic performance. He's still in the yellow jersey here. Um, but a one, two, three for Yumbo Visma. And I spoke to their sports director, Franz Masson, at the end. Um, interesting, when I asked him if he'd ever seen uh, such a performance before, uh, he mentioned the unmentionable, but we'll hear that now. I think most of us thought it was going to be a fun sprint today. Um, did you or did you have other ideas? What, what, what was it, the wind? What prompted the sort of change in strategy? Yeah, of course, it was uh, very technical, the last kilometres. We did yesterday the reckon of this uh, stage and... Uh, we came to the conclusion that it would be really difficult for the wheel sprinters to, to be in a bunch sprint. And we expected maybe a group of 30-40 riders, which would be good for a route. But uh, the plan was to attack uh, the last climb with uh, Nathan in front and then uh, Christoph and then see what's happening. And then in, one, in a certain time they, they were gone. And, uh, yeah. what, what did you think when you saw, I mean, Stebar held on for a bit, but when you saw uh, a three-man breakaway and all three riders being from your team. What were your thoughts? Yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, it was it was the plan to attack there, but not. Yeah, we could not think that uh, three of us would go. Have you seen that before? Long, long time ago on uh, Muir van Hooy. Yeah, well, yeah, we remember <laughs> that. But this was a bit different. I mean, you've obviously got overall ambitions here. How how did you decide? What should be the order across the line? Because I guess time bonuses may be important. Yeah, for the, from the car uh, view was maybe the best that uh, Christoph would win, but they had to decide themselves. Is that a welcome gift to Christoph? Also, but uh, for the next days they can uh, go out and uh, and Primos can go in the bus and uh, take it uh, easier, more. Uh, they have more rest than uh, Christoph now. You mentioned Nathan, and we saw him last weekend as well play a really important role. I mean. You've got a very strong team, but he seems to have stepped up a lot this year. Yeah, we also, but uh, also Rowan did a really good job. And uh, it was important uh, teamwork today. And uh, it was not uh, only the win of uh, Laporte, but it was a win of the team. Well, that's Franz Massen, the sports director at Yumbo Visma. Every, everyone very happy there. Um, it's interesting that he volunteered Guis because it's a now notorious performance, isn't it? Um, a 1-2-3 for them at Flesh Wallone in 94. It was really... It heralded the end of their Italian doctor, Dr. Ferrari, wasn't it? Because that was the performance that really raised eyebrows skywards. Yes, Richard, and I happen to be drinking a glass of orange juice now. There was a, f- a famous reference to orange juice in that quote, wasn't Careful it? Careful now, Daniel, it's <laughs> yeah. very dangerous. I'm surprised if I drink 10 litres only. <laughs> um, I'm surprised Franz Martin didn't also mention a stage from Paris-Nice, in fact, because his team's current team, Jumbo Visma's precursor, was Rabobank, as most people know, and in 1999, second stage of Paris-Nice, Rabobank absolutely tore up the race in crosswinds, and they had seven of the top ten, and they effectively killed the race. I think 11th place came in two minutes down, but they didn't win the stage. 
Um, Andre Schmil, who we talked about in the podcast last week, didn't we? Um, won the stage. Yesterday's stage as well, Dan, we're speaking on uh, Wednesday, no, Tuesday morning, in fact. Um, yesterday's stage, the, the crosswind stage, another another belter, a really exciting stage, uh, and a win for Fabio Jakobsen. Um, we didn't maybe see as many casualties in the end in terms of GC, but you know Roglic looks ahead of the time trial on Thursday in a really strong position, obviously, after taking that time on day one. Um you get sad when there are crosswinds on, um, so I'm sure there was a lot of sadness yesterday. But was there anything significant that happened in terms of the race to the the race away from the sun as it is this year? I mean, not not too many big names of casualties really. There were a lot of guys who looked as though they might be cut adrift badly at one point. Um, you know, like Jack Haig, Simon Yates, Guillaume Martin, and um, I mean, as I say, the majority of the big hitters sort of limited their losses in the end, or or indeed didn't incur any losses. But I think, you know, one sort of tantalising talking point we've got as we go towards the time trial is how far Wout Van Aert is going to be allowed to carry his general classification challenge. I mean, Thursday's stage is already arguably the hardest stage in the race, maybe even harder than the um, big fin- summit finish on the Turini at the weekend. So that may already give us our answer on that score. Um, but it's difficult to see well, it's difficult to see who else is going to challenge Ro- Roglic, isn't it? It is, um, yeah. I mean, it has to be said, the Jumbo Visma have got the strongest team here on paper. We'll return to that and, and the performance on Sunday in a moment. But one rider who did impress in the crosswinds, Ben O'Connor, uh, the Australian AG2R, fourth at Tour de France last year. Uh, he was very happy with how the crosswinds stage went. Here he was at the finish in Orléans. A hard day. I mean, that well, a good day for you, I guess, but pretty frantic out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm stoked. It's the first time made. Pretty much first echelon in a proper big race. Um, so, yeah, I can just be happy with how today went. It was a bit sketchy, though. But What do you put that down to? Was it, I mean, you must have been prepared. We could see how strong the wind was. Were you just making sure you were in the right place? Did you have some help from Oliver or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the boys are perfect today. I think uh, uh, Dorian at the start actually was really, really helpful when I actually was not in good position. And then um, it's just about not panicking and then trusting uh, guys like... Ollie Narsen and Stender Wolf, and it was uh, perfect. So I can only just be really, really pleased with how today went. You sound almost quite zen, like it was quite, quite, quite relaxed. Well, either. I think it's just like relief that's now <laughs> pretty much sunk in, um, which is the best thing. Uh, it was nervous going into today, so uh, it just gives yourself a good chance to finish up there on the GC. I guess um, you've got the, the number one on your back. You know, you're, you're the team leader here after your season last year. Um, more pressure, more responsibility. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's what you sign up for when you uh, finish fourth in the Tour de France. I mean, there's uh, you can't really beat around the bush. This is just now what uh, my uh, cycling world's going to be like, and hopefully, I can perform like I did last year um, from now on. Does it also mean that you can sort of prepare in your own way for the Tour, knowing that that's probably your biggest objective of the year? Yeah, I think I said this to a few people just upon reflection. Um, you've now kind of made the steps, so it doesn't feel like you're searching for what you can be or what you should be like or what kind of rider you are. Now, uh, I know I can finish at the top of races. You know, winning something like this is pretty outrageous. Um, I think that would be extremely difficult, but at least I know I can be up there with the best guys. And uh, 
you can actually plan for that rather than planning to, to say, oh, look, are you, are you actually going to be good here or, or not? <laughs> uh, so today, I guess, another, another day in your education and, and your experience as a, as a stage race rider. Yeah, I said that to Daniel this morning. I was like, today is a day to learn before Denmark. And yeah, it went well. Now, Daniel, I was joking earlier on when Franz Massen uh, mentioned Guis, and that's an obviously notorious reference point for the sport. Um, the, we've got that performance. We've had some incredible performances in, in the last couple of weeks from UAE Team Emirates as well. Yuma Visma and UAE Team Emirates seem on a different level. And there have, there have been inevitably some questions that one of our listeners um, wrote in saying that, you know, could he believe in, you know, Pogacar riding everyone off his wheel with 50 kilometers to go at Strada Bianca and then Jumbo Visma managing this 1-2-3 at Paris-Nice. Um, it's, it's, it's inevitable, isn't it? But those two teams do look, at the moment, um, like they're on a different level. A, a colleague, not a colleague, sorry, someone who works in the sport for one of the teams joked yesterday, asked me what Ineos was Latin for. Was it anonymous, he said? Um, because they, you know, they've suddenly, without Egan Bernal, who's obviously missing, um, you know, they, they look like an ordinary team, um, as, as all the other teams do, really. Maybe with the exception of Quickstep. Yeah, I think I would, I would reserve judgment on Ineos in this race until the weekend, because yesterday they were good. Uh, Rowe, Luke Rowe was really good in the crosswinds, and um, Yates and Danny Martinez was, was, were pretty much on his wheel the whole time. So I think, as I say, Roglic looks almost unassailable, but... Uh, a decent challenge at least should come from them but yeah I mean we've talked about this before haven't we how wealth begets kind of more wealth and resources in cycling and you know the best teams can attract or maintain the richest sponsors and give themselves more and more spending power and that's what's happened with UAE I mean we've, we've gone from a from thinking that, that was actually quite a a weak team behind an extraordinary young leader not very long ago sort of 18 months ago and since then they've signed um riders like Almeida Soler and then they've had you know other riders who have just improved and all of a sudden they do look like a, a bona fide super team don't they they had a bad day yesterday though Almeida and uh, Brandon McNulty did not have a, a good day so they're not infallible at all um we watched Strada Bianca on Saturday of course and that extraordinary Performance from Tadej Pogacar. Um, what were your thoughts? Not not perhaps the gripping race that it was last year, um, but but obviously a, a, instead of a, a thrilling race with a galaxy of stars, we saw one absolutely superlative performance, I guess. Yeah, I mean, on Saturday night when I arrived at Paris, I went to see Max Schachmann, the defending champion at Paris, interview him and we were just chatting about what he'd seen because he'd been glued to it in the afternoon. And it just, I suppose, speaking to other riders and getting their, well, a sense of their kind of awe is maybe the best measure of how impressive it was. And just the sort of dynamics of the, the attack, the moment when Pogacar went away and just the the audacity not to just put in an acceleration, look back and to see, you know, how much damage you'd, you'd done or he'd done. And then maybe to, to sort of sit up when he realised that the bunch hadn't split and then go again in a, in a kilometre or so. He was just, he was a dog with a bone, wasn't he, for two or three minutes. And um, obviously, physiologically, that takes 
something quite extraordinary to be able to, I mean, I don't know how many watts he was putting out over five or six minutes, but um, in order to open up that gap on a, on a part of the course, which I know in the past has been sort of strategic. And I think Pogacar talks about this after the finish, um, but it, it doesn't obviously lend itself to just the strongest ride automatically pulling away, does it? No, um, but it was a race he rode last year. He was in that that group, but you know, probably learned a lot riding that. Um, and there was a moment where it looked like he was maybe coming back a bit. The group behind was was chasing him, but I think we saw in the reaction of the riders, not just here but there as well. I mean, Valverde um, looked as happy finishing second as he's ever ha- looked winning a race, um, and there was a sense from some of the other riders as I guess there maybe was in Marx's day and you know there's that name again that comparison again but you get the sense that other riders are almost feel privileged in a way to be racing in the Pogacar era because there's a sense now you know he's won he, it's we haven't seen this for many many years a rider who uh you know it's a, it's a favorite for the Tour de France again but riding as he is now in, in early March, turning up, winning these races. Now he'll target Milan San Remo and the Tour of Flanders. And I think now we, we think, well, those are within his reach, probably. Yeah, and I think the, the f- most frightening thing, as we've said, and as I've said a, a few weeks ago, is just this air of sort of insouciance, this sort of nonchalance that he has that there's no sense of weight of pressure of burden of you know whether that's coming from scrutiny from the outside the media or the scrutiny of his position or expectations from his team um you know yesterday i saw pictures of him moments before rolling off the ramp in tirreno sort of doing selfies and um you know posing for fans and and so on and you know that in the past that has been a major buffer against the the domination of certain riders or against incredible talents or it's it's been you know something that's really scuppered a lot of riders on their route to what seemed like a kind of inevitable domination and with Pogacar it just doesn't seem there there isn't a hint of that at this point it may yet come um, but I don't think it will anytime soon. There was an extraordinary moment as well on his uh, approach to Siena just before he began the climb where he high-fived his first coach um, one of his, uh, one of the people who runs his, his Poggy cycling team um, pointed out on Twitter that was his first coach. Amazing. You'd have the presence of mind to to see him and to acknowledge him in that way. Um, I spoke to his UAE Team Emirates teammate, um, Matteo Trentin, who won GP Samin last week. So he's been contributing to that success that they've had at the start yesterday about the team, um, the level they're at, and Pogacar himself. Here is Matteo Trentin. Matteo, um, we saw yesterday a real show of strength from Jumbo Visma. We've seen that from your team as well the last couple of weeks. A lot of people talking about your two teams being a, a level above the others. Is that how, how you feel as well as how you see it? Uh, what I feel is that this level of uh, cycling is increasing every year. And uh, I think we made a, a really good winter. And yeah, the, the team came really prepared and uh, really motivated to do well. And actually, this month, February for us was really, really good. And did you just put that down to winter preparation? I mean, it's a lot of things coming together. Uh, like from my point, my personal point of view, I normally do like a cross-country ski training camp in uh, during Christmas time. Last year, because of the weather, it wasn't possible to do it like 100%. This year, I could do it 100%, and you can see there is a little bit of a gain through now. 
So then uh, training camp in January, good weather all the time and not sickness. And uh, the level is so high that every single little detail that makes a huge difference when you come to the when you come to the races. What did you make of Pogacar's performance on on Saturday? I guess nothing he does surprises us, but <laughs> he keeps surprising everybody. Like when he went, I said, "Oh shit, that, that that's a long, that's a long thing." Uh, at one moment, I think he was a little bit too. He aimed a little bit too high to go solo from there, but he keep up really, really good. They they, they shaved at 30 seconds when Nasgren went on the on the hard climb, but from there on, the, the gap mainly be, 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 uh, remained the same. So it was really an impressive performance. Can he win Milan San Remo? I think he can win anything at the moment. <laughs> you know the Tour of Flanders well. I guess he can win the Tour of Flanders as well. I don't know. I mean, it, it's a different kind of racing. But uh, I won't be surprised. And what did you make of yesterday? Um, did you see that coming? Did you suspect yeah. it wouldn't be a sprinter's stage? Yeah, we, we went to see the climb and I was kind of sure that someone would do something that Jumbo Visma did. They did it in actually great style. And also the execution of uh, the preparation or the attack they did was actually perfect. So, I mean, chapeau to them. When, when, you, when you can perform something like this, you just have to say congrats to the guy who did it. Well, Daniel, I'll leave you on your way to Nice. Um, what are you looking forward to for the rest of this week, apart from the crosswinds? Well, it's kind of an upside-down Paris-Nice in terms of the weather, at least going by the forecast, isn't it? Because we might get some rain at the weekend. Um, it's just going to be interesting to see how, particularly the, these sort of mixed stages, um, so Thursday in particular, and then there's another one at the weekend, um, stages which are, are difficult to interpret, difficult to read, going by the profile because you know they could turn into um, huge sort of slugfest between the best climbers and um, the, the race being sort of decided as the French say a la pedal or there could be some interesting tactical scenarios particularly you know we've sort of almost written off Ineos but if Yates stays up there Martinez stays up there they've got a couple of cars to play there are a a couple of other teams or a few other teams, you know, Bora, Hansgrohe, I mean, they haven't had a very happy start to the race with um, Vlasov and Schachmann, but that might liberate them to try something a little bit different, a little bit quirky. And, uh, well, as we've seen before, Rog I mean, is specialised in winning this race in quirky circumstances, well, exactly. doesn't he? <laughs> exactly. To say the least. Uh, well, Daniel Bonroot. Thank you very much, Richard. Well, I'm back with Lionel now, having left Daniel behind at Paris-Nice. And uh, we've been catching up with the latest stages of Paris-Nice and also Terreno Adriatico, of course. Uh, in the interview there with Matteo Trentin of UAE Team Emirates, I asked him about his team's supremacy, along with Jumbo Visma. I mean, at, at Paris-Nice, it's all been all about Jumbo Visma, of course, two one two threes in the opening stages. Um and I mentioned an email that we got from a listener. The email came from Nathan Long. Um, and he asks if we'd be addressing the amazing form of the weekend. I desperately want to believe that this is a clean sport, but the weekend showing is a little unnerving. I work in the investment industry. There's a phrase that we tend to watch out for as an early warning indicator. This time it's different. I think you could apply this to cycling right now. Riding a whole peloton off your wheel or three riders from the same team going away in any other era, alarm bells would be ringing. Well, clearly alarm bells are ringing for you. Nathan, so I don't think it's confined to other eras. Um, and, I mean, you refer there to Pogacar at Strade Bianca as well, of course. I mean, 
as Daniel said when I asked him about this, wealth begets wealth. And we have in Jumbo Visma and UAE Team Emirates, as I put it to Matthew Trenton, two teams that are, at, you know, currently the best two in the world. Um, you know, Pyrenees is perhaps not, it's not the strongest field. We have this crazy situation where we've got two World Tour stage races going on at the same time. Um, and, you know, Wout van Aert, um, Primoz Roglic, two of the best riders in the world. Christophe Laporte is riding at, at a new level for him. Although, speaking to one or two sports directors and other teams, um, Matt White and Tom Southam, they're not surprised at all to see Laporte um, riding um, as he's riding this week at Pyrenees because he's always been capable of it and they've seen flashes of it in the past. And sometimes when a rider moves to a new team, as with Lotte Capecchi, as I mentioned there, you know, being surrounded by better riders um, brings a, a rider on. We see that in other sports as well, don't we? Um, footballers who go to good football teams become better footballers. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think we can answer that question at the moment. All we can do is uh, keep our eye on what what's going on and keep our ear to the ground. Um, it's no great surprise. I mean, we spoke over the winter about UAE Team Emirates and their recruitment. They've They've bought up an awful lot of the best riders in the world. Yeah, I mean, if you take today's time trial, if you said before the start that the top three would be Wout van Aert, Primoz Roglic and Rohan, Rohan Dennis, there were no eyebrows would be raised about that, would they? I mean, it's uh, they're all extremely good time trialists and it just so happens that they ride for the same team. That doesn't mean that uh, it's not a question to be asked, but I do think that this developing theme is of a sort of handful of teams collecting almost sort of Panini sticker-like um, strength in depth, building on already strong teams and adding to them. And there's a real kind of, uh, well, a sort of top four, isn't there, in the World Tour of teams that don't just have one or two stars, they have four or five. And I think that's what, what we're seeing. And I suppose, you know, this is the, the hors d'oeuvre part of the season, isn't it? We've got Paris-Nice, going on at the same time as Tirreno Adriatico and all the best riders are split roughly evenly between the two races and it's a case of just spotting and looking at the form and, and seeing it would be fascinating to know how they're all going uh, against one another but that's the whole point of the season kind of being split into these two lanes as we lead into the first big classic Milan San Remo where we will see um, all of the best riders in the world go head to head against one another for the first time really in the season so yeah I get, I get the point but um, both Jumbo Visma and UAE Team Emirates have have really uh, taken the the team building on another level over the last couple of winters haven't they just adding ever stronger riders to their lineups and we're seeing that in the results and it's it's the strength in numbers isn't it the other teams even Ineos Grenadiers have you know trying to fight it with uh, one or two riders um, and uh, when you think that, uh, that you know some of the smaller teams it's the case that you know Pierre Latour for example you know he's he's there the sort of uh, him Simon Yates they're riding for teams where they're really the only hope of a, a high overall finish. Whereas uh, in a race like Paris Nice, you could see Wout van Aert winning it this week. I mean, why not? He he's the sort of well, Sean Kelly of the could. modern era, isn't he at the moment? Yeah, absolutely, definitely could. Um, I mean, a couple of we'll move on to Terreno Adriatico in a moment because we obviously um, talked quite a lot about Paris Nice in the last segment. One thing we didn't mention in the last segment was the performance of Nairo Man, Nairo Quintana, and the crosswinds yet again. 
that guy is unbelievable. His the way that he rides in crossroads. He was there without any teammates, um, but a brilliant performance from him. Unfortunately, he ruined it all with his time trial today. So he kind of slipped away a bit from the you know contention for for overall. He lost one minute seventeen, I think, today down fifty fourth. Um, so you know, not a great day for Quintana in the time trial, but a very good day for Simon Yates. And I spoke quite a bit to Matt White at the. Um, at Paris over the first couple of days and you know they had high hopes for Dylan Grunewagen um, and Simon Yates I mean Grunewagen had mechanical problems on stage two unfortunately um, but Yates a very very strong performance day after a bit of an up and down day on the crosswind stage um, the group in the in the crosswind stage he was in on the wrong end of a split at one point and Matt White said that in a group of the size that it was, which was 50 or 60 riders, you've got to keep riding through, as Quintana was, and not try and sit on the wheels because that's when you get in trouble. You've got to just commit to it. And it's actually easier and certainly safer. Um, tangent, but I, I went and met Marc Sergent um, last week in Belgium, former Lotus Sudal manager, and he was talking about crosswinds, and he said the best wheel to sit on is a nervous, strong rider. Because a nervous strong rider sits just out from the gutter and offers a lot of shelter. And he's talking about his early days as a pro when um, he was a nervous strong rider. And after a couple of years, another rider came up to him and said, you used to be a great wheel to sit on, but you're not anymore because you're not so nervous. <laughs> so interesting little bit of insight. But um, yeah, Sam Yates pretty well positioned in Paris-Nice, but who can see beyond Jumbo Visma there? And it could be Van Aert or Roglic. Roglic, if he takes his tights off, you know, he could... Uh, he he could he could easily win that, but Van Aert is looking extremely good for Paris Nice as well. Any anything from Terreno, Lionel, that's caught your eye apart from the buns on buns? I have to credit Kate Wagner with that. But um, the Iolo team uh, are sponsored by Burger King, and they have a a, a very lifelike depiction of. Uh, uh, what did Burger Kings do? Not a Whopper. They uh, did a Whopper, what yeah. What did Burger Kings do? They it is a Whopper. whopper. Yeah. They've got a Whopper on their on their backsides. Um, she 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 called it buns on buns, and it is it's quite quite strange. Yeah, it's uh, well, I noticed it at uh, the weekend actually, the uh, on the Aolo jerseys, uh, but also as you say, it's on the back of the shorts, isn't it? And um, you know, we're staying in Florence, not really the place that you want a craving for a Burger King, is it? Um, with all that lovely well, food I don't know if it did it. I don't think seeing seeing a picture of it on their bottoms has given me much of a craving, to be perfectly honest. But no. Um, there you go. We're talking about it, so it's a success. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, now, what caught the eye? I mean, uh, today's stage was, was fantastic, and it was just one of those days when, again, I'm kind of wondering why the racing is the way it is at the moment. I mean, Alaphilippe's, you know, there are chances later in the week for him to, um, you know, make some gains here or there. It's going to be difficult in a race like this up against Pogacar and others, but just racing for the sake of racing. And I think, you know, we've had years when it's all felt quite controlled and cautious and people keeping their powder dry for bigger objectives further down the road. But uh, we're seeing racing every day, um, aren't we, in, in, uh, on all fronts. And uh, it's great to see. It makes, the, it makes uh, you look at the race profiles of the stages and think uh, maybe today will be a little bit quiet, just have it on in the background um, and pay attention at the end. 
but that's a dangerous assumption to make at the moment, especially when you see the, the types of riders that reacted so smartly to Alaphilippe as they were going towards that uh, intermediate sprint, wasn't it, on a slightly uphill section. And, and seeing mm. the four of them away, um, Theo Gagan-Hart joined Pogacar, Soler and Alaphilippe, as I said earlier. Mikel Lander tried to make it across but didn't quite get there and got caught. Um, and it really made the sprinters' teams work, and they probably uh, will benefit from that sort of chase. I mean, it disrupted, gave them a different um, challenge to think about. You know, they're sort of perhaps that's what it's all about: simulating Milan San Remo, uh, sort of ten days away from it. Yeah, I mean, very. It was very good to see Teo Gegenhart um, riding across to that group, which was no mean feat, and a very, really good sign from him that he is he's finding some form um that was impressive um arnold demar was impressive as well at the finish i i thought you know i think it was uh jacopo guarnieri who uh led him out and a really difficult finish over these little cobbles you could see the wheels skipping about a lot um and demar looked like he had it really would have been a really important win for him but caleb ewan very quick in the end um so that that was yeah that that yeah I mean the, the only thing I, I I wonder about and it goes for Van Art as well is that these races Pyrenees and Trenadretico can also you know if you ride the way that Pogacar rode today um, might it you know affect his ability to be in the top form for Milan San Remo as it did with uh, with Matthew Van der Poel last year and and arguably with Van Art as well last year. Well, yeah, I think the change of date maybe means that they need to go a bit deeper, a bit harder. It's a little bit further out, isn't it? The race uh, normally would finish on the Tuesday before Milan San Remo, and instead it's finishing on the Sunday. And with, as we've talked in the past, you know, the big debate about whether or not Paris-Nice or Tirreno Adriatico is the better preparation for Milan San Remo, um, well, it's a sort of moot question now, isn't it? Because they. Uh, well, they both finish at the same time, so it comes down to more the style of racing and the the course rather than um, the proximity to Milan San Remo. But uh, I wonder whether that's something to do with it. You know, having some hard days out now, uh, ten days before, perhaps it's preferable to having some hard days out sort of six, seven days before. I, I don't know. Um, in the sprints, I should mention Olaf Kuy, the young Dutch rider, another Jumbo Visma rider getting up there he's been uh i think second and third in the two sprints so far and the other thing that caught my eye in the time trial it's caught a lot of people's eyes i think was um filippo ganna being basically having what was it 21 spare bikes on the car following car behind like a him. double decker bus yeah. behind him <laughs> and the suggestion is that this is uh well it's creating a bit of a, a tunnel effect for him we know that um well you have go back to the 1995 tour de france when chris boardman was uh, trying to win the prologue in Brittany, and the, well the the approach was for the team car to drive as close to his back wheel as possible because um as i understand it richard you might know a bit more about this i'm no aerodynamicist but uh, by having a, an object behind you, you think i am uh, well you know, you might know, you might have read a bit more or talked to people a bit more about this, but this is how I remember it. By having the car right behind the rider, um, you're kind of not having the same uh, bit of drag from, you know, just having dead air behind the riders. So, um, yeah, it, this is an, a new trend, isn't it? Sort of, 
hundred well, and yeah. something thousand euros worth of spare bikes on the car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was actually, yeah, Boardman spoke about it to me in relation to 94, the prog there as well, um, having the car as close as possible behind him, which did almost cost him his leg a year later in, in those terrible conditions in Brittany. But yeah, um, he's spoken about that before. Obviously, that that's a long time ago. Um so it's been known about for a long time, but I haven't seen that before. Corrections Corner, it wouldn't have been uh, Guarnieri because he was the wrong side of a little split today. I think it was Tobias Ludwigsen, his lead-out man, or DeMar's lead-out man in Terreno Adriatico today. But it was good to see DeMar competitive again because it's been been a while, really, since he's been able to uh, be at the front in a in a race of that, that level, a World Tour race like that. So, um, yeah, that was good to see. Lionel, we heard in the last part from Matteo Trentin, who won Le Salmon last week. And I was there, and I wrote about this in the 1101 Cappuccino last week, but um, Daniel Manjas was there, the old Tour de France commentator for many, many years, the voice of the tour, the voice that you would hear at stage starts and finishes as a kind of soundtrack to, to what was going on. And it was an absolute delight uh, to find him in the tiny little square at the start of the salmon his voice booming across the village really um and uh, i thought i'd reintroduce slow radio uh, and have daniel monjas um the vo- the old voice of the tour he stopped in 2014 and for me the tour de france isn't quite the same without his voice he doesn't do many races anymore he used to do 200 a year but it was great to hear him at Le Salmon. So here he is, Daniel, Daniel Monjas. Cabrio championnat de Belgique, Arnaud Dely, Cabrio à Etius Vlad, et sur les routes espagnoles, Brett Van Moor, champion de Belgique contre la montre, vainqueur au Dauphiné, le multiple champion d'Europe, record même du monde de l'heure, 55-089, Victor Campenas, record même du monde de l'heure, à la tête de l'équipe, il a été champion du monde il a gagné quatre fois l'Amstel, deux fois le Tour de Lombardie, deux fois également Paris-Tour, Paris-Roubaix, le Tour des Flandres. C'est imposé également dans la Flèche Wallonne, dans Liège-Bastogne-Liège, avec des maillots jaunes du Tour. Il effectue sa 20e saison dans le peloton professionnel. L'ovation à Philippe Gilbert. Philippe Gilbert, au départ avec Campenars, avec Van Moor, avec... Arnaud Delis avec Frédéric Frison, avec Vermeersch, avec Volens. À tout à l'heure pour le champagne. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to our longtime sponsor, Science and Sport. We're very grateful to them for their support. You can, of course, still use the discount code SISCP25 at scienceandsport.com. Um, to get your 25% off. Uh, but you may want to head over to Science and Sport and get even bigger um, discounts because they're offering 30 or 40%, even up to 40% off all products um, at the moment. Go to scienceandsport.com and uh, 
yeah, huge discounts at the moment at Science and Sport. If you want to stock up, as I have just done, I've just placed a large order for my Science and Sport products to help me fuel me through the next few weeks and months of cycling. Now, I mentioned at the start the news that uh, Netflix are giving cycling the drive to survive treatment. Um, this has been the phenomenally popular, successful and very watchable series covering Formula One. We actually um, knew about this during last year's Tour de France and in fact mentioned it in an episode of Kilometer Zero that we did about cycling films and cycling on film. It just shows you, if you listen to the cycling podcast, you get the news without even knowing it's the news. I understand that ASO have actually engaged the, the same production company, Box to Box Films, who are here at the tour this year with a view to making uh, an equivalent in cycling. The one problem with that is that it would need the teams on board and there's always this uh, tension between ASO, the teams and the UCI um, about basically who gets any money from projects like that. So there we were, Lionel, last July somewhere in France, uh, dropping the, the news that uh, Netflix were there at the tour last year. Um, I was sceptical about whether this project would come off because I, there have always been problems between ASO and the teams um, about who owns what and who gets the the profits. But I'm I'm quite glad and well very happy to see that uh, there's been an appreciation here of the bigger picture. And if the new Netflix series on cycling can do for cycling what Drive to Survive has done for F1, then I think everyone's a winner. Um, eight teams have apparently signed up to the project. Filming has started already, although the series will focus entirely really on the Tour de France, but Netflix have been filming with the teams since the Tour de France presentation last year. They're going to be doing a lot at the Dauphiné on the eve of the tour. The eight teams involved are Jumbo Visma, EF Education Easy Post, Quick Step Alpha Vinyl, Groupama FDG, Ineos Grenadiers, AG2R Citroen, Alpecin Fenix, and Movistar. Um, I, no surprise to see a couple of French teams in there, of course. It's a good selection of teams. Some people complaining that um, UAE Team Emirates declined the opportunity. They, of course, have the defending champion, Tadej Pogacar. I don't think that's a problem. It's certainly not a problem on Drive to Survive when Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton are not involved. Um, the way that series works is that each episode tends to focus on one particular storyline. So it's not, you're not really, you might not be aware of who's won the Drivers' Championship, um, but it does a really good job of bringing out the personalities, the humanity, bringing the sport to life. And uh, like I say, I think it's a very positive thing um, if it, if it, you know, if it, if it's as good as it could be. I spoke to one of the um, teams involved, EF, Education Easy Post, their sports director Tom Southam the other day at Paris-Nice. Um, we'll hear from Tom just now and then we'll hear from Owen Dool, uh, a new rider for them. He's joined from Ineos Grenadiers. Um, a few of Owen's thoughts, and he's ridden very well actually this week, on uh, the, the Netflix project and also how he's settling in to his new team. So here they are, Tom Southam and Owen Dool. Are you a fan of Drive to Survive? Yeah, I mean, that's cool. I think it's uh, that's a great documentary. It's got really good... Uh, I mean, it's just human narrative, isn't it? Which puts, like, uh, makes the sport more interesting. Like a lot of people, a lot of my friends, Formula One, watched it when I was a kid, went off it, and now, like, you know, a bit of internal conflict, a bit of, uh, you know, human drama. It's good. Do you think cycling has those same ingredients and personalities? 
I was thinking about this the other day. The thing that's really good in Formula One is the fact that the person you race against is in the same car as you because the equipment's exactly the same. Cycling's got a lot of like rivalries, but it's quite a lot. It's more complicated, and there's a lot more sort of narratives going on. It does have it in short, but then but they're more complicated. So I don't know whether they're going to try and narrow it down and have like focus on a few of those or spread it out and try and really deeply explain how all these sort of things work. But it, I mean, it's got it in abundance, right? I wonder, I mean, some of the drivers, especially like Daniel Ricciardo, you know, real big personalities. And he sort of carried that at, at, the, at first, I think, drive to cycling. Who are the big personalities in cycling potentially? But they're all in our team. Just uh, 31 of the biggest personalities in cycling. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think I think cyclists have, have, have struggled recently a little bit um, with, with, with not actually getting their personalities out a lot, you know. And um, because we, 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 a lot of teams are quite sort of regimented in, in the answers you can give, and I mean, nobody ever wants nobody ever wants someone to say, "Oh, well, like my like my car was shit or my bike was shit," you know, like. But I think personalities will hopefully come out more. Not so much about you know your equipment or your team, but just just people's general background will come out more because people don't often say a lot in interviews, do they? They say, "Yeah, I'm happy with my teammates. It was great. Um, I won. I lost. I'm not upset. I'm happy. There's more to life. You know, it's all the same sort of crap. So it would be nice to go a bit deeper. And mm. your your team's been reported as one of the teams involved. No, you can't confirm that. But how do you think? The, the riders and the staff will feel having apparently two Netflix people with each team embedded with each team throughout the tour that's another thing I wondered about it's like do people start acting up are there certain people that want to you know advance their own thing are they going to behave differently you'd hope not and I think the tours like especially around the tour it's so, it's so hard I don't think there's much room for for that you know kind of manoeuvring and stuff so I, I mean, you see pretty quickly people get... Because we've always got cameras on the bus. We've always got people around asking questions. And, I mean, I think once someone's around for a couple of days and people start to get a bit tired, they're just going to be themselves, aren't they? There isn't, you know, there isn't really the room to do that. One final thing. I guess a lot of the riders will have watched Drive to Survive and enjoyed it. Do you think, do you think a lot of them will feel... That see the opportunity that's there for the sport to, to reach a new audience, which is in all our all, all everyone involved in cycling's interests, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're clued up. They all they they all get it, um, uh, and they stand to gain a lot. I think I think I think the key thing for me is is like you know, kind of everyone understanding it is for all of us, as opposed to like, oh, let's try and make ourselves get that next sponsor or ourselves get that next thing it's like okay if there's if there's a bigger pot for everyone then you know there isn't teams languishing with smaller sponsors and people do you know because there's you know there's 18 there's 20 teams spread it out everyone gets everyone gets better conditions improve all around so that, that, that's what I think everyone would like to see I think you see that a lot in Formula One you know where like the, the teams communicate a lot and um, they're working to get the brand of the sport out there um, and you kind of I, I picked up on that from the documentary and I'd, I'd like to see I mean cycling's never been like that you know you're basically trying to flick everyone aren't you you know it's it, like in everything the parking spot at the hotel and this and that and it would be nice if it um, if we didn't all it kind of it's kind of the whole point of road racing in a way though isn't it I mean that's what road racing is all about it's it, it that that's it's so embedded in Absolutely. the sport 
I mean, it's so deeply, it's so deeply inside all of us, you know, that it, you see people do it almost without thinking, because a lot of people are ex-riders themselves, and they all have this mentality of like, no, I'm just going to push you back and I'm going to go forward. But I think as more people are coming into the sport and the sport gets bigger, you know, like people come from, people come from those other like franchise sports and people start looking at it, then it, it does change and we get out of that kind of stamping, you know, treading on other people mentality. Maybe. This Netflix could, could, could be the, the key to unlock that, change in mentality. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe not, maybe I'm dreaming. I've asked a few people this, but are you a Drive to Survive fan? I am, yeah. So are you excited by the, the news that cycling's getting similar treatment? I think it's great. I think, uh, you know, I, I'm yeah, big Drive to Survive fan. And from what I can understand, it's been done by the same company, Box to Box. Um, and I think what they did for F1, if they can do that for cycling, will be, be unbelievable. You know, my, my brother wasn't hated F1. I said, oh, you should watch this documentary. And he watched it and he's obsessed with F1 now. And you know, if, if they can do the same for cycling, I think it'd be amazing. Extra incentive to, to make the Tour de France team. <laughs> yeah, potentially, yeah. Get, uh, get Netflix famous. And how are you settling into the, the team? Um, it's a complete change for you, I guess, after yeah. quite a lot of years. You know, British cycling and then Team Sky, Team Ineos. Um, how, how are you finding the new environment? I'm, I'm really enjoying it, I've got to be honest. I think I think with Ineos and like you said before that, with, with British cycling, I was, I was very comfortable. I kind of knew the system. and. I wouldn't say I was in a rut, but I think I just kind of reached what I could do in that team with the riders around, you know, it's, it's a stacked team, so for me to get opportunities and it was always going to be difficult, um, whereas here, yeah, I have a lot more freedom, I, I feel there's a lot more belief in me as a rider as well, which is nice, and I think that's, for me, something I strive off, um, and yeah, I just want to kind of have the best year possible and kind of repay the, the faith the team have showed in me and, and signing me and giving me these chances. Classic's the main focus for you? Classics, yeah. So, and again, differently from from previous years with Ineos. You know, I'd never do, I'd never done a, a Paris Nice or a Torino. Um, I thought I was, could always be good at opening weekend, but then by the time the main classes came around, I kind of either stayed the same or, or dropped down a little bit, and everyone else raised the game. Whereas this year, yeah, I'd, I'd do Paris Nice, and yeah, it's just that it's, it's nice knowing your whole race program up to, up to quite far ahead, so you can actually plan and think in your head what you need to do to be good there instead of kind of almost feeling like you have to perform in every race just to get into the next race. Um, so yeah, it's, it's more relaxed, but I think it suits me a bit more. Well, we heard from Owen Duell there, and before that, Tom Southam. Very interesting from Owen about uh, the, the, the sort of opportunities he's getting at his new team. He's never ridden Paris-Nice or Terreno Adriatico before, which is amazing, really. Um, so, uh, yeah, but they were po- talking as well about the, the new Netflix uh, project. What are your thoughts on that, Lionel? you excited? Uh, yeah, I am. I mean, I'm not a Formula One fan, and I've given Drive to Survive a go, and I, I definitely get what you said about you, you kind of uh, see past the car driving, um, and, and it's about the, the storylines and the personalities and the people, isn't it? And you do get a, I get a, a greater understanding of, of the sport. And I think that uh, there's great potential for cycling and the Tour de France and for all of us who follow um, the races, really, to learn a bit more about the, the people involved. I, what I do think is that uh, there must be some teams that haven't been selected who are not all that happy at being excluded. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Matt White 
quite openly. I mean, they, they've kind of they kind of pioneered the behind the scenes videos, didn't they, with Backstage Pass? And they were very keen to be involved. I understand Trek Segafredo also keen to be involved. Um, and so I think, yeah, UAE Team Emirates declined the opportunity, but there are others who are not involved who would really have loved to be involved. Well, it's an enormous um, shop window for the teams and the sponsors, isn't it? You know, Netflix is obviously uh, a global media phenomenon and, uh, you know, people will sign up. Cycling fans may sign up for Netflix to watch the, the documentary and people who perhaps have a passing interest in cycling the way that I have. Well, I, I really have no interest in Formula One, but I still watch Drive to, Drive to Survive on your recommendation, Richard, and uh, didn't regret doing so because I enjoyed it. I think, you know, it's a... It, it's a kind of a big moment, I think, for cycling and the Tour de France. It puts the, the sport in front of some different people. Um, and if the, yeah. the goal is to broaden its appeal and demystify a bit and put some personality um, behind the, the sunglasses and under the helmets, uh, this could surely help. Definitely. Um, yeah, and, and I can see some of the the reservations or the the skepticism that that some people have and you know with formula one there have been suspicions that some of the decisions taken have been with ha at least half an eye on the netflix series um and you you wonder about you know quick step alpha vinyl have got this this dilemma i don't think it's much of a dilemma at the moment jacobson and cavendish you know if you were if you were Netflix and you were putting some pressure on and maybe offering some money, although not enough for Patrick Lefebvre, he's already um, said that he's signed up for this time but wouldn't do it for so little money again. But you could see that there could be pressure to have one rather than the other. I don't, I'm not saying that that pressure would be significant or you know change anything. I don't suppose it would. But um, that that's a, the fear that some people have. I should say as well that the, the Netflix uh, um, treatment is being given apparently to tennis and golf as well so it's not just cycling and and you do I, I do worry a little that it could be diluted I mean that there are other sports series Amazon do all or nothing and I watched the first couple of those and there are just so many now that I've kind of lost track and um, the novelty has kind of gone for me uh, with that series um, but you know, it's the same production company, uh, Box to Box Films, um, and they've made other great uh, sports films as well, notably uh, Senna. Um, so you know they've got they've got a great track record, and it's going to be a, um, a proper you know two uh, people from Netflix, presumably sound and, and film people in, in each team. Um, so it's going to be done properly and. Uh, very much looking forward to seeing the results of that, which I guess wouldn't be before next year. Maybe we should get our lawyers onto the teams that weren't selected and do an audio version for the uh, for the other teams. Get our lawyers, or just ask them ourselves. Well, I mean, I'm trying to make <laughs> the it, other problem being that we don't have lawyers. We don't have lawyers. Um, <laughs> we don't. Hopefully, we don't need them. <laughs> Lionel, any update on the Rolling Castellet Prize? I mean, a lot of calls for Tadej Pogacar to be awarded it already I, I, given his performance at Strada Bianca I mean surely the new leader I mean has to be said that was the most impressive performance of the season so far uh, but watching the first stage of Paris I thought maybe there should be a team prize now I don't know maybe a sort of an extra team large Cassoulet Bowl for the team of the year I don't know mm. but I think yeah Tadej Pogacar no, I think it's an individual 
on Saturday it was uh, yeah the performance of the season so far and will take some beating I think but still Strade Bianca is still uh, not a monument you're really trying hard with that pronunciation though aren't you I'm L- trying Lizzie hard Banks with the pronunciation really... yeah I mean yeah Lizzie Lizzie Banks is going to have a very very long night um correcting all my errors in <laughs> in podcasts um otherwise so yeah I think that uh you know it's not a monument it's not uh, over 200 kilometers it's not in the middle of a grand tour going over all big mountains there's still plenty of scope for somebody to top all that performance this season but um you know as we stand today i think that's the, the best ride of the year so far so we have a new leader congratulations taddy um before we go on to the, the more serious subject that you mentioned at the start, Lionel, of how events in Ukraine are impacting on the world of cycling, can I give a, another quick plug to the event I'm doing at the Tour of Flanders? Uh, the Flandrian Hotel are hosting me and guests for Tour of Flanders weekend. If you want to come and ride your bike and uh, hear some talky-type events in the evening, uh, from me and perhaps others as well uh, go to flandrianhotel.com f-l-a-n-d-r-e-n hotel.com and you'll find details there about how to sign up i'm looking forward to it before we go as i mentioned at the start in the news roundup uh, the sporting implications of the russian invasion of ukraine uh, is one thing gazprom being suspended uh, they'd wanted to ride trofeo leguelia in white jerseys to promote um, uh, you know a peaceful message uh, but the team has been suspended because all Russian and Belarusian squads are suspended from competition and no events will be held in those countries until further notice uh, the next major international event to be held in either Russia or Belarus really is the European track championships are due to be held in Tula in Russia next year Gazprom's team manager Reynard Kamidulin said that the team has until the end of the month to save itself uh, with an alternative sponsor. And he does point out that the team is based in Italy, the management company is based in Switzerland, and the sponsor is Gazprom's German arm. So, you know, the situation even with regards to Gazprom is not perhaps as simple and uncomplicated as uh, the, the sanction suggests. The UCI and the European Cycling Union both have uh, Russian and in the case of the European Cycling Union, uh, Belarusian people on their management committees and British Cycling has sort of taken a lead. Uh, Frank Slevin, the chair of British Cycling, wrote to both the UCI and the European Cycling Union saying that Belarusian and Russian members of the management board and management committee should be suspended for the time being on the basis that sanctioning the athletes uh, can't be right if the administrators are allowed to carry on as normal. Now, on the European Cycling Union, the vice president, Alexander Guzyatnikov, who is Russian, and management board member, member, Natalia Silinskaya, who people will probably remember as a former track sprinter, a Belarusian, they both withdrew themselves from the weekend's Congress meeting. British Cycling actually didn't attend that meeting. Um, and so there is a sort of, I guess, a political standoff here. The Scandinavian countries plus Latvia 
Lithuania, Estonia, Belgium, Netherlands and Poland have all written to the European Cycling Union president to ask them to suspend the Russians and Belarusians from the management board on the basis, I think, that um, whilst withdrawing themselves voluntarily is probably the right thing to do in the circumstances, um, it leaves grey areas. You know, when do they do they decide to come back or does the uh, cycling union decide to come back and in the case of the UCI uh, Igor Makarov who has been a big figure in the UCI for a decade uh, he is Russian uh, he's an oligarch he supported both Brian Cookson and the current president David Lapartion in their bids to become UCI president and he's a member of the management committee uh, I understand that British Cycling have had a response from the UCI president saying that the IOC the International Olympic Committee hasn't recommended that uh, members be removed from management committees because they're Russian or Belarusian and I suppose that raises the question of you know who is making the decisions for the UCI is it the UCI or is it the IOC or do all of the sports governing bodies across all sports need to come together and have one consistent line when it comes to um, administrators companies events sponsors so that there isn't a sort of difference between you know I don't know cycling and uh, football and sailing or whatever the gymnastics whatever the sports happen to be so a very unfortunate um, situation and it does uh, have implications for sport well Lionel um, we should wrap things up for this week a week where we've released two episodes um, we also released the latest episode of Cycling Podcast Femina last week covering the sort of opening races in Belgium. Lots of interviews there as well with the likes of Emma Norsgaard, Annemiek van Vloot and Demi Vollering and others. Um, uh, we are, and as I said earlier, we're launching our new Arrivé show next week, which should come out as soon after Milan Sanremo as we can as we can get it out. A bit like on a grand tour where... The episode comes out in the evening with pretty quick uh, reaction, analysis, discussion. So look out for that next week and we'll be repeating that throughout the spring. And if you are looking for something else to listen to and you're a friend of the podcast, Parry Nice is on this week. You may not have heard the episode I made last year about kind of the origins and history of Parry Nice and Sean Kelly's seven-year winning streak in the 1980s. It's called Parry Nice and the King, I think is the title of the episode, but it's on Friends of the Podcast feed now, along with, what, 50 or so more episodes. So if you are a friend of the podcast and you haven't worked your way through the back catalogue, um, that would probably be uh, an appropriate one to have a listen to this week. Sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com and keep your emails coming, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. We've been getting a lot of correspondence recently and we read it all. Sorry we don't um, read it all out on the show, but we try to respond to all the emails at least. So thanks very much for <laughs> Lionel. Lionel Lionel acknowledges that we do try, don't we, Lionel? We do try. Yeah, it, it can be tricky when we're away uh, traveling or what have you. Um, but I, I wonder whether we should do a sort of emails episode a bit like a press conference because people who send in emails it's different to an actual question isn't it they're often making interesting mm. points um that are relevant to our yes. coverage but also the sport in general so maybe that's something we'll look at indeed indeed yeah well thanks for thanks for all the emails and um, we really appreciate you getting in touch that's all for this week. We'll be back next week with Daniel again, um, looking back at Paranese and Terreno Adriatico, and goodness knows what else. So thanks very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.
You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast with Lionel Burney, Daniel Freeb, and Richard Moore. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Adam Bowie.